Thank you, Katie. So I'm just going to briefly intro the topic a little bit, um, talk to you a little bit about technology. I was thinking about this today and, and, and what I could say, um, and I was talking to James Dawson, and he showed me this website that I'm going to show you because it is incredible, just so you get a, 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 a bit of an idea of the scope of, of technology use. Uh, this website is called Internet Live Stats. I'm trying to make it bigger. It's got some live statistics about what is happening on the internet in the world right now. Um, total websites, email sent, Google searches today, we're at 4 billion, or is that 4 trillion? I don't know. I'm not very good with numbers. Um, Instagram's posted today, and, and all of this sort of stuff, you can keep going, active users. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on Instagram's. It gives you an idea from when, from when you load the website, how much is being posted uh, by kind of putting up all these little things. But since we loaded the website two seconds ago, there is 11,000 posts, 12,000, 13, 14. This is your children uh, who are posting these things and your grandchildren. Um, Tumblr, look, teenagers don't really use Tumblr. Skype, maybe they use Skype a little bit. Oh, look at all them. Uh, gigabytes of internet traffic per second. Look at this. <laughs> it just, it keeps going. You've got to go through the website quickly, otherwise, you know. All right, let's, let's skip that. YouTube, this is uh, videos viewed in a second. Yeah, in any second. I don't know, maybe you're getting a bit of an idea of how influential and massive the internet is. Somebody told me the other day that uh, when you, in a minute, 300 hours of data is uploaded onto YouTube. Every minute, 300 hours of data is loaded onto YouTube. So, I'll bring that down now. But you get a bit of an idea of uh, how much the internet is being used, what technology is like, um, and, yeah, just a few statistics for you. Um, yeah. 200 minutes a day is, is about the average internet, or the average iPhone use for a teenager or child, 200 minutes a day, that's 3 hours and 20 minutes, um, that's probably true for my life as well, that's kind of, that's true for my life, 93% of, of 12 to 24 year olds spend the majority of their time on their iPhones, so rather than desktops or laptops, they're on their iPhones, their smartphones most of the time, when I was in Kenya last year, uh, I learned this interesting t statistic that more people in Kenya have smartphones than they have clean running water. Um, so they're, they're more interested in having a smartphone than they are in, in having water that they can easily access and drink. So you get a bit of an idea that technology is daunting and it's a massive, massive part of the world that we live in and we can't even begin to really understand how, how influential it is. Um, I was reading an article, somebody brought this attention to my attention fairly recently, but uh, a guy called... Mark Prinsky, he's an American education academic, he came up with this theory in 2001 that there are digital natives and there are digital immigrants. So that the digital natives are the people, he, look, I'll read it, he defines digital natives as those born in an innate new culture, while the digital immigrants are, in an old, are old world settlers who have lived in the analog world and are immigrating to the digital world. So that's you guys. If you're wondering who you are, uh, most of you would be the digital immigrants. Uh, technically, I'm a digital native. Like, I fit into the category that he says. He says, kind of, 
and the way that he explains it, he's an, he's an education academic. So he talks about in the 1990s, there was a bit of decline in, in education standards. And a lot of people, uh, institutions and academics, they were blaming that on the students. You know, the students aren't paying more attention. We, it's, it's their fault. But then this guy, Prensky, he came out and he said, actually, I think it's because you're teaching people who are digital natives as if they were native to the world that you grew up in. And so he started to say, we actually need to treat these people as if they're from a different country. Like, these, these people have a different way of processing. They have a different way of thinking about this sort of stuff. Uh, so, he, yeah, he, he talked about that. When I was in university, I remember I studied education in university. Um, and I remember learning that um, it's, it's less valuable to, to teach somebody. These days, it's, it's less valuable to teach them facts and figures and dates and numbers and that sort of thing because at any moment of the day they have access to all of that information in front of them and so what's more valuable in education now is to actually teach people pathways to information to, to good information so rather than teaching them you know the outcome you should teach them the pathway pathway so that they can find good outcomes for themselves uh, yeah digital native and digital immigrant it's a you know like I said before Parents are the immigrants, and uh, the digital natives are our young people. Um, yeah, basically anyone who's younger than 30 is technically a digital native. But then even saying that, I feel like when I look at my youth kids uh, at NBC Youth, and I look at the way that they use technology, I feel like I don't even live in the same country as them. I feel like they're in a completely separate world to what I'm in, where they send Snapchats, where they send Instagrams, and, and all the messaging. I read, I read a statistic today that the average amount of instant messages that a, a teenager gets on any one day is 168. That's the average. <laughs> and I kind of felt like I must not be very popular <laughs> uh, because, yeah, mine is substantially less than that. Yeah, the technology that you grew up with is not exactly the same technology that our, your children will grow up with. I was talking to my friend earlier in the week. Well, it's actually, this was a, a little while ago, and he was telling me he has a five-year-old kid, and he was telling me he was at home doing his budgeting, um, on a calculator, and his five-year-old son walked up and pointed at the calculator and said, what's that? And he said, it's a, it's a calculator. Um, it, it, it helps me to do sums. It helps me to do plus and minus. And this five-year-old, he picks it up and he looks at it, and he held it to his mouth, and he goes, Siri, what's five plus ten? This is a true story. This is what this kid did. He didn't understand that you actually have to press buttons. He thought that Siri lived in the calculator. Um, <laughs> Even this morning in the office, we were just talking about technology and things like that. Katie said that she was at, uh, at a cafe this morning, and she saw a, a young kid, probably a toddler, lean over her, his mother's shoulder, and she was reading a magazine, and the kid swiped the magazine as if swiping the print media was going to make it move. He didn't understand that this is print media, and there's a, digi there's a difference between a screen and print media. This is, this is the world that people live in now. They don't like, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of technology uh, that kids will never have access to. So I don't know if you thought about this, but today's kids will never look something up in an encyclopedia. They'll never have to rewind the tape before returning it to the video store. In fact, they probably will never go to a video store. I know that the only existing video store in the Northern Beaches, which was Blockbuster in Monavale, recently closed down. Um, they'll never have to memorize important people's phone numbers. They won't have to wait for their favorite song to come on the radio. They won't have the satisfaction of slamming an old-style phone down because you just tap the button, and that's how you end the call. Um, they won't know the, the sound. Uh, I don't know if you know the sound, but they won't know this sound at all. Do you remember this? 
Yeah, fax or dial-up internet. Um, <laughs> Alright, that's enough of that. I was tutoring this afternoon. I was tutoring a kid who's in year nine, so he's 15. And I, I played him that sound. I said, do you know what this is? And I played him that sound. He was like, oh... I'm pretty sure that's like Star Wars, isn't it? <laughs> he goes to me, he goes, isn't that R2-D2? <laughs> and I was like, no, that's, that's what the internet used to sound like. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, so these kids, they live in a completely different world. I really think that Prensky's idea of the digital native and the digital immigrant, it's actually a really, really helpful metaphor to try to understand when we come to our kids and their use of technology. It's a helpful way to think about it. It's like we're foreigners to them. Like, their world is just so developed, it's so different. It's, a, it's, a, it's an independent culture that we need to try to understand. So I think the part of what tonight is about is, is helping you guys to know how to interpret that world that they live in. Um, help, how to, helping you to know how you can, I guess, be helpful to them, be beneficial to them, but also to, yeah, to do the right thing to, for them as parents and as grandparents. Um, Greg is going to be talking about a lot of this stuff. Three things that I just think really are important when you come to this topic? How do we help our, our, our children and our young people? Firstly, we need to educate. We need to get educated, which is why it's so fantastic that we're here, because this is education. But education is, is a non-stopping thing, isn't it? Like, this world changes monthly. It changes almost weekly. Like, I was looking at statistics from 2016, and they're completely different from the statistics from 2017. Like, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, the, the whole what's more popular, what's their, what are they being used for? It's constantly changing, so we need to constantly be educated. Uh, we need to interact as well. Just imagine, imagine you're thinking of it as a different world. You want to educate yourself about the new culture, but you also need to interact with the people from that culture. If you want to understand, you have to interact. Uh, so spend time talking to younger people about their technology. Like, talk to me about it. I mean, I'm a bit of a novice as well because I'm 26 years old, so technically I'm ancient. Um, but but talk, to, talk to younger people about it. Talk to your kids about it. Uh, I know that they'll, they'll probably think, oh, mom, that is not what you use Facebook for. I'm sure you've heard that. But you should talk to your kids about it. And finally, you should have empathy. Just like if it was a new coach and you were going there, you have to try to put yourself in their shoes. Try to see from their perspective why it's valuable to them and try to understand why they use it the way they, they use it. So, yeah, there's three things. Educate yourself, interact with the technology, and have empathy for where your kids are at. Um, hopefully that'll be helpful for you as we navigate this hugely, just a massive, massive topic. Um, I'm going to hand over to Greg. Greg, would you like to come up and join me on the stage? Thank you. This is actually the first time I've ever met Greg, so <laughs> I'm going to introduce myself to him the same time I introduce him to you. <laughs> How you doing? I'm Daniel. Good to meet you, Daniel. Nice Greg. to meet you. Thank you. Do you know, did you say you're old at 26? That's scary. Um, do you know the other day I had my first experience? I used to joke at my parents around programming the VCR and how they couldn't, like, program it and think that was just so... They were so old, they couldn't even understand that piece of technology... I got an Xbox the other day. Don't ask me why, but I got an Xbox. Um, I can't work out how to use the thing. It's got too many... It's got like... It's got two joysticks on it. What do you need two joysticks for? And all these extra buttons. And I had that moment of going, this, this doesn't make sense to me like technology used to make sense to me. And I realised, I think I'm, 
I've crossed over to the dark side. Technology doesn't naturally fit or click with my brain anymore. That's what I'm going with anyway as the theory. I'm I'm glad you just had someone up here talking to you about technology because I'm not going to talk to you about technology. I'm the more and more I spend time dealing with this stuff, the more I don't like it. Um, and so to, tonight I'm really gonna, going to talk a bit, I think, about some of the concerns that we have with technology, particularly social media. Not to, not to scare you or anything like that, but to kind of push an agenda, which is to say, look, we need to... We need to know what's going on. This is uncharted territory that we're in. I don't think that this has occurred before. Um, and the research that's coming out is pretty interesting. Um, and, and I think the best thing we can do as parents, grandparents, adults, people working with young people is to kind of at least have a clear idea in our mind of what it is that we're, we're dealing with um, and why we want to do the things we want to do in terms of setting boundaries or, or whatever processes we go through. So, But to start with, um, just to make sure, when we talk about technology and we talk about adolescence, it's, we're talking about two things that are, you know, quite important in their own right they have unique components you know technology is growing at a fast rate the the changes the it's it's mind-boggling right adolescents they're mind-boggling too right because developmentally they're different to most of us here unless you are one still um and and that's a really important thing for us to understand Many of the concerns that we have are related to the fact that adolescents are not adults yet. Our children and our adolescents have some developmental stuff going on that we're still watching unfold in terms of the impact technology is having. So, for example, in terms of brain development, most of you know about the neuroplasticity. You've heard that buzzword, neuroplasticity, yep. Um, we, We now know that brains aren't really fully matured until late 20s. Um, We used to think that happened earlier. We're now seeing actually it takes a lot longer. Um, We also now know that the last parts of the brain to fully develop are the the wise parts of the brain. Um, And that's because of the way the brain develops. If If you go... If you had a brain sitting on a brain stem, down here at the base of the brain stem, you've you've got all the parts of the brain that do all the stuff that happens automatically, right? Heartbeat, you know, blood pumping, all the automatic functions of the body, the stuff we don't have to think about, thank goodness, right? Um, And then if you go up into the next part, which is kind of in the middle, we hit the emotion centers of the brain really the limbic system um and then the last part is the part over the top so on me we go brainstem in the middle here emotions and across the top here the frontal lobes this is the last part to develop this is the smart part the wise part of the brain right 
and that means that we now know developmentally why adolescents are the way adolescents are. And it's because the, the emotion components of the brain switch on and become fully functional before the part that's supposed to help them to interpret that and understand it kicks into gear. And this doesn't happen till late 20s, <laughs> um, depending on who you are. Now, that has, that's significant when we then look at things like social media um, or making wise decisions around social media. Because predominantly we're also talking about adolescents as being the biggest users of most things technological at the moment. Okay, so we need to understand that adolescents aren't built to navigate this space on their own. They actually don't have everything that they need to do that. And that's why, again, it's important for us as adults to be able to speak into this space because we've got some other stuff. Um, we've got a lot more wisdom. So I'm going to look at three things. Some of these might be uncomfortable. I apologise for that. But when, when people talk to me about technology, I didn't even introduce myself. Did I? They're all looking going, who is this goofball up here talking about this stuff? Let me put this in context, sorry. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist. I was a primary school teacher before that. Um, so I'm predominantly a child and adolescent um, specialist. Um, uh, and so I run a private practice in Mona Vale um, and, and do a, a fair bit of consulting work for a lot of the schools in the area. Um, and, and as well as that, uh, because of my, ch my own church involvement, I do a lot of consulting work for various churches. Um, some of these issues, for example, the pornography one, which I'll touch on briefly, um, are big issues. You know, like a, at the moment, I'm on a task force with the Sydney Diocese looking at this because they're concerned. They don't know what to do with some of these areas. Um, and the concern is valid when we start looking at the research. Um, so I'm going to touch on all of these briefly. But I want to spend most of my time on the social media one um, because I, that's, the, I think, the one that's the most interesting. Um, it's probably the newest, to be honest, as well. All right? So gaming. This is old, right? So... It used to be, probably 10, 15 years ago, the concerns around addictions to gaming and things like that were the, the thing that everyone was talking about. But uh, every, I think we've kind of just accepted it. <laughs> um, and, I, and to be honest, I think there's been a shift. You know, when technology developed, it was primarily the gaming sort of stuff and the pornography and social media has now become this behemoth that people spend all their time focusing on and, and dealing with. Um, but in terms of gaming, look, the research is relatively clear around this. And as I've got, there are about 8% of children who, who start gaming will go on to become what we call pathological gamers. It doesn't necessarily mean they have an addiction. It's really hard to define an addiction to something like online gaming. Um, but what it means is it will become a problem. 
so pathological in the sense it's going to mess with their life a bit uh, and certainly in clinical practice I've, I've sat with some of these kids or parents of these kids um, whose every waking moment is focused on you know well it used to be World of Warcraft um, and some of these online games um, and so I think the reality is what we're seeing is for some kids it's a, it's a risk area right so there are some kids that will naturally be drawn to playing games um, and they may have elements of their personality that are addictive. Not all kids will do that. Some of you will have kids that probably aren't even interested in playing games. Great. That's cool. Um, but for some it is. And so if you've got one of those kids, then the, the primary focus becomes how do we begin to regulate and moderate their use? Because, again, they won't do that naturally. They're not naturally going to say, oh, I think I'm playing this too much. It's becoming unhealthy for me. I think I better, like, just, I'm just, mum, dad, I'm just going to play, like, an hour each day. Is that okay? Oh, that's not a conversation that typically happens. It's once they're on, you know the fight that's going to happen, regardless of what they've committed to and agreed with. When you get to that point and you go, this is... Right, we talked about this. This is where we turn it off. No. Everything, all rules out the window. It's going to be a fight. Um, We also know that, and the research gets a little tricky here, but certainly kids who spend a lot of time gaming, mental, in terms of mental health, they tend to be a little less healthy. That's not to say that playing computer games makes you depressed Um, this is not causal this is not causal research but it's saying that there seems to be look we're not finding evidence saying that it's helping it's not making anyone healthier it's not helping them to develop in positive ways so this is the, the kind of the gaming literature we know it's not really good what do we do with that look this is not new we set boundaries if you, if you ask me, I'd say hold off on it as long as you can. <laughs> you know, the earlier kids start in things like gaming, the more likely it is that they'll develop into um, unhealthy habits, right? So if you've got young kids, don't rush to get them playing Wii U or Connect or whatever sorts of games they are, Right? And certainly try to restrict it as much as you can. That's the best we've got. If it's out of control already um, and and you're really stuck, then it may be a case of actually you need to get some additional help for that. Pornography, though. This is a different kettle of fish. You can do a whole night on pornography. Um, Yeah, you can read that. Cool. There's some amazing research out there. A lot of Australian research. Last year, last year or the year before, was the first year they held a symposium in Australia on the, the risks or the harms associated with pornography for young people. Um, and last year there was a... Uh, I've forgotten the official term. Basically, the, the government set up a committee to look at this because they, they were getting concerned, getting a lot of pressure, wanting to actually have a look and were collecting submissions from the public. Um, what do we know, right? Now, you guys, 
that sound that was played before? You know the dial-up tone? Back in my day, people who were pretty hardcore into pornography, that sound would get them a little randy. Um, because that was the level of... But, you know, if you were like me back then, it used to be still images like this. Line drop out. And then you'd be like, ah, this is when I was much younger. Um, right? That was, that's the dark ages. Phenomenal shift with technology. Fast forward to high def- definition videos and obviously things becoming quite um, different in terms of their content. Um, the concern is with young people though, right? This is an amazing social experiment. We, we, we don't know really the long-term impact that pornography viewing is having. So what are some of the things that we are aware of? As it says up there, 12 to 17-year-olds. They're the biggest consumers. These are children and adolescents. These are not adults. So when people say to you, yeah, but don't tell, you know, it's, fr- it's freedom of choice. Don't, you know, like the arguments against putting restrictions on pornography or, you know, free speech and all this stuff. Yeah, but it's 12 to 17-year-olds that are the biggest consumers. We're not talking about adult populations here. One in five adolescents think it's normal. So this is a culture shift that's occurring. Um, and almost 50% of viewed it before the age of 13. But this is where it gets really scary. Um, the research is really clear on this. Negative impact on body, body image, right? Crystal clear, that comes through the research. Um, increased viewing of pornography is linked to early engagement in sexual intimacy. That pattern, that trend is definitely there. Those of us working in the field with children, in clinical work, um, and most schools, if you talk to them, there's a concern about the increased level of inappropriate behaviour by very young children. Where is this coming from? Most of us suspect it's because they're seeing it. They're not looking for it. They're coming across it um, or they're being exposed to it accidentally in other ways. But we're seeing a shift in behaviour. And the last two, the levels of aggression and violence within the pornography that that we're seeing are scary. Now, there's an argument that, you know, some people say, yeah, but it's pornography. People know it's pornography. The research says... Adolescents don't. If you or I watched a hardcore pornographic video, we would kind of go, oh, and we would look at it and kind of go, wow, that's like, uh," you know, we would have this sense of this is not (laughs) what it's like. Um, Adolescents don't know that. They don't make that distinction. And so it's now shaping the levels of physical intimacy, uh, the way physical intimacy occurs among adolescents. Again, if you, GPs, people working with young people will tell you that there are some changes that are happening that are a little scary. Um, and so we've, we've got to be vocal against this, right? There, there is no middle ground with this. 
Um, I don't. I'm not concerned about adults. I mean, obviously, I don't. I'm not advocating viewing pornography. The problem is the children and the adolescents. Um, if you ever get the chance to lobby local members, stuff like that, go for it. Because these are the vulnerable people in this. Now, what do we do with pornography? Or what can can you guys do? Um, I know this seems like a strange area to head into, but I'll just. I'll get off this topic in a second. Um, sex education, open and honest sex education. Um, I think prior to, again, back when I was a kid, if I wanted to view pornography, I literally had to go down to the service station and buy a magazine, which was way more than I could afford to spend. And it was way too embarrassing to ask for that. Right? But obviously you have affordability, accessibility and, and non anonymity. Um, you know that technology has brought those. Um, and so it's changed the landscape significantly. So now we have to be more prepared to have uncomfortable discussions. What we might think is uncomfortable, knowing that our young people potentially are already seeing and are privy to or hearing conversations about things that we probably didn't come across when we were their age. Um, I, I think we also have to fight against the objectification and sexualization that occurs in the media. Like, I don't notice it anymore, right? I've become so desensitized. I don't, I drive past a bus with like a, a model in lingerie sprawled across the side advertising hamburgers and I don't register that there's anything wrong with that. And yet there's people out there, um, collective shout, organisations that are fighting with everything they've got to bring some of these companies to account. And there's part of me that's like, I want to have that. I I want to notice this. I want to speak against it. I want to educate. I've got little kids, right? I didn't tell you that either. I've got two six-year-old girls, a three-year-old boy, and a six-month-old boy. Part of me is scared. So I've got to educate my kids about what is okay and what is not and how they should be viewing other people and how they should expect to be viewed. And I'm not, I can't leave it up to society to do that because I don't think the trend is in the right direction. Um, and so therefore, we've got to, I've got to point things out to them. You know, they're still on, a little on the young side for that. But at some point, being able to say, you know, why, why is that? Why are they advertising that that way? What's that got to do with hamburgers? Um... Filters and monitoring. I've, I've put this in here purely because it can seem like it's too hard. And, and to be honest, it probably is. In this day and age, it really is almost too hard to put filters and monitoring and restrictions in place. Um, because, and I've sat down with adolescents and the parents are like, I've got it all nailed down, you know, they leave their phone here on the table we shut off the wi-fi at night they have no access and then sit down with the adolescent and they go is this confidential and i'll go yes what are you going to tell me and they'll go 
yeah, I've got another phone that I keep in my room. It's like, yeah, I figured you probably did. So you're just doing everything anyway. Hmm, yeah, don't you tell mum and dad about that. No, I can't, okay. And, you know, like, and this is common. It's very hard. And I think what we've got to do, we've got to put as much as we can in place to help because adolescents' frontal lobes haven't really kicked in. They may not make wise decisions, but that's not good enough. We've also got to be educating them about why this is important. Helping them to begin to develop their own wisdom and understanding and ability to make these decisions. Um, and I think being careful about our own judgments and language use. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm talking to myself, really, when I say that. But I, like I have a deep desire to get better at this. And to not make jokes about stereotypes and not to feed into anything that is unhealthy, particularly related to sexuality or anything like that. Because I don't, I don't want my children to grow up thinking that it's sexuality is an area where you can poke fun at people or um, where we can make life difficult. For, I don't want that. I, I want them to be... Um, I guess people who are confident in who they are and are able to um, to help others to feel safe and secure and not threatened. All right. Social media. That's where it gets... Actually, no, it doesn't get any lighter. Sorry about that. Um, have a think for a second. Answer this question. Why use social media? Tell someone, some of you are like, what? I don't use it. Good for you. I like you. Um, if you do, tell the person next to you, why do you use social media? Take a minute, answer that question. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask you another question. So the next question, why do you post what you do? Why do you post the things that you post? Because if you use social media, unless you're just kind of standing in the shadows watching what everyone else is doing, some of us do that. Some of us post stuff. Don't pigeonhole me. (laughs) Some of us post stuff. So if you post stuff, Stop and think. Why, why do you post what you do? Why do you put the stuff out there that you do? Have you, you, to have an impact? Yeah. To keep in touch? Some brave people. For work? <laughs> Marketing? Maybe? Yeah. To get likes? Maybe. This is how we feel good? Yes. Okay, do you consider the impact it has on the person viewing the post? When you post something, do you stop and think about the impact it has on the people who are going to view it? Is it for you or is it for them? Ah, fascinating. Yeah, we think that's the case, what we're... What I'm going to tell you is that it makes people feel worse. 
Right. So I, I, I don't know that we think about this sort of stuff. I think we kind of, it happens, it comes along, everyone's doing it, we start doing it, and sometimes we don't stop and actually ask some of these questions. Um, are you really, really sure that there are clear benefits for you from using social media, from posting stuff online? I mean, really sure. Now, I, As I said before, I don't like social media. <laughs> so you're not going to get a pro-social media talk from me. But I didn't start there. Do you know, I, I had, I have a Facebook page. I didn't have one. And someone at work said to me, you really should have a social media presence. And I thought, oh, I should, but I don't want to do that. And they said, that's okay, pay me and I'll do it for you. I said, sweet. So someone created a Facebook page for me. And they said, you should start blogging. And I said, cool, I don't have time to write blogs. That's okay, pay me and I'll write them for you. And I did. Now, I gave them content. So what would happen, we had this system where this person would kind of, each week would send me and go, oh, I'm, or Fortnite, whatever it was, I can't remember. And I'm thinking of doing, this might be a really topical thing, and I'd go, yeah, sweet, here's a couple of quotes, this is kind of the gist of what I think is important. They would put it together and post it for me. And I was doing that for a while. And, and then the more time I spent looking at all this, I started to get frustrated with the amount of noise that was out there. It's just it was like noise. Like everyone's like looking at everything and have you seen this? Have you seen that? And I'd get sent videos and stuff. And then I had this moment where I thought, I'm contributing to that now. Ah! Shut it down. Because I couldn't in my head work out why I was doing it. And I think initially it was probably marketing. And I thought, well, that's for me, right? So emerging concerns. <laughs> this is the trouble. When we start looking at the research around social media use, I struggle to find the good, right? struggle to find it. When you start looking at the research that's out there, what you start coming across are like, yep, all of these negative harms, sleep, increased depression, anxiety, dependency issues, decreased social skills, increased sense of inadequacy, concerns about the impact on creativity, inability to sit with difficult emotions, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of negative stuff that the research is generating. And these are not anti-social media, you know, I'm not like only going to the anti-social media research sites. Yes? Good question. It will be, it, for majority of the studies, they're not causal. 
So what they're looking at are correlations, relationships, and generally the pattern would be that increased use is linked with increased risk. So the, the question then would be, is there a safe level of using social media? Yeah, probably. It's just that social media is not designed to keep you at a safe level. And when we look at the trends of internet use, social media use, it's not low-level use that our adolescents, they're on it non-stop. So these are the kind of the areas that, were, that the research is really clear. You know, it, it, this is strong research that's coming out. Again, it's not causal, but that's because whenever we're doing research with people, um, we're complicated. You're complicated. You know, if you eat... If you eat a bit of fruit up the back here and go home tonight and you're as sick as anything, you might kind of go, well, that bit of fruit was the culprit, but it may not be. There's so many other possibilities. It's really hard to establish cause. So these are patterns or trends that we see. Um, there are, I guess the reality is going to be that there are some young people who are maybe more susceptible to mental health issues, have an anxious predisposition or, you know, family history of stuff flowing through that might be more likely to be negatively impacted. And there are some young people who probably will not experience any of those things if they view social media lots. Um, but I haven't looked, but I suspect there's research probably associated with um, young people becoming overly confident and positive about themselves as a result of social media. I haven't actually seen that. I'll have to have a look. Um, but what if we go kind of next step down from the research to stuff that maybe we're not confident in yet, but we're concerned about, right? So one of the ones that's fascinating, I think, is this idea that we were losing creativity, right? Now, this is interesting. Yes, I do. Good. Um, that boredom is important for developing creativity. And social media and technology is getting rid of boredom, Right? And I'm, I'm so aware of this, right? If I'm standing waiting somewhere for five minutes, and I, I'm either playing a game or checking email or doing all the stuff that I just think I'm now, like, telling you is bad. Um, whereas, what did we used to do? Probably carried a book if you were a bookworm type person or you'd stand there and you'd, chat to the person next to you, strike up conversation, or you lift your head up and kind of look around at what's going on. Go to a, I've got little kids, right? Go to a park, a playground, and have a look at what's going on, right? And what you're going to see is the kids playing and a bunch of mums and dads all standing around like this. This is like, this is a massive change, so we can't find the, we don't have the research to say that, you know, this is what's happening, but we're concerned. 
about the impact this has on things like creativity and thinking skills. Um, attention. <laughs> there was so, for so long, there was this ongoing debate around, you know, is gaming, you know, is, is technology and gaming responsible for increases in ADHD in children and, you know, looking at this sort of stuff. And I think, no. But, um, but there is some kind of, there are emerging concerns, I guess, around this idea that we are so fragmented in what we do, the multitasking myth. And so f that we're losing the ability to actually sustain focused concentration and attention on something because we now do everything at the same time. You know, uh, you know as well as I do that most of you, if you're sitting there working on something and you've got your mobile phone there, that even if it bings, buzzes, shakes, in that moment, you're like, you know? And then if you're strong, you kind of go, no. And if you're not, like me, you'll kind of think, oh, but that could be really, like, really important. Um, and so you'll break your concentration and check it and discover that it's spam or something like that. You go, ah. Um, but this sort of living where we've got so much coming in, busyness, noise, it's inevitable that that's going to have an impact on us and, and developmentally on our young people. The, the neuroplasticity model essentially says, look, our brains change depending on the environment that they're in. And if you go a step further even to look at the world of epigenetics and the idea that genetically we can change our genetic makeup, not we necessarily, but over time our genetic makeup can be modified based on the environment. We're crazy to think that this stuff has no impact on us. Of course it does. We don't know long term what that's going to look like, but I think it's good to be a little wary or concerned. Um, Relationally, um, I read this great story by a, a US journalist who occasionally these people go off, unplug for a year or whatever, um, you know, as an experiment to see if they can do it. And I was reading through, and one of the things he said was, you know, he didn't even notice, but people started to say, man, you've become more emotionally available. Right? Now, he wasn't... A, and he wasn't trying to do anything. And I, I was kind of struck by it. I was like, man, we don't even realize what this stuff is, how it is changing the way we relate to people. And yet other people were kind of looking and saying, you know what? And I suspect what was happening is you're engaging. You're there. You're present. You're present the whole person, <laughs> everything, not just kind of like while you're doing other stuff or with 50 million other things going on in your brain. You're present. Um, this could be absolute rubbish, this next one. But uh, again, it just struck me, you know, the, the Gallup, one of the Gallup polls from the States, uh, you know, I came across an article that was looking at the, I guess, people's perceptions of close friends and saying that, you know, in the last 10 years, whatever, uh, their research had said, you know, 
people used to say, I've got 10 close friends, now they kind of say two or three. Why? What's going on? Now, there's no direct link to social media or technology. Certainly the article was kind of in, couched in that literature. But we, we are concerned about the impact technology is having on the ability to do relationships. When I have a conversation with you, face-to-face, you're not just listening to the word. You're not just interpreting words. You're interpreting body language, emotions, a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't get communicated. No matter how, you good, how good you are at texting and using emoticons, whatever sort of stuff you do, you, you cannot communicate the, the nuances that we do when we do face-to-face communication. The other thing is, if I say something really offensive to you, like, no, I won't, but if I did, I'm standing in front of you. I've got to now navigate that. I've got to try to, like, sort it out and make it okay and help you, you know, and talk it through. If I text that to you, I don't. And if you get offended, probably won't know unless you text me back. And if you're offended by it, you'll probably show someone else and go, have a look at what they sent me. Ah, what do you think I should say? No. Delete, delete, delete. No. And you'll craft it. And you'll, you'll kind of think it through and double check it and then hit send. We don't do that. In, I can't like go, how's it sound if I say this? No? Oh, wrong. Whoops, wait. Delete, delete, delete. Forget I said that. How about this? You can't do that. So there's, a, there's like an art or a craft of conversing that we are a little concerned about. Because again, going to school playgrounds or groups of young people, and if they've got their phones with them, it's rare that they're all sitting in a circle facing inwards having a conversation like we used to do when I was a, a punk at school, you know? They'll often be sitting back to back like this. Right? So the long term, we can't measure it, but we're concerned about the ability to have conversations, to deal with the difficult emotions in people, to, to be with people in their distress or difficulty or to celebrate with them because that stuff doesn't happen. Um, so anytime anyone says to you, yeah, but I've got all these friends, or, oh, but my community's grown, or oh, it's all social, oh, it's great, bunk them. It's not. Go and talk to them face to face. That's how we do this. It's, it's a much more rich environment. So what can we do? There's no quick fix for this. But I, can't, I, I love this idea of, of, of just like at the end of the day the sun goes down, there's a sunset. I love the idea of having a digital sunset in your home. Right? So again, research around sleep difficulties. Um, primarily it's probably linked realistically to anxiety underlying anxiousness or stress issues but technology doesn't seem to help if i'm lying in bed at night trying to get to sleep and the last thing i do before i go to sleep is check my emails i'm just asking to not be able to fall asleep 
And I even have that moment sometimes, you know, I'm walking past the bench on my way to bed and my phone's buzzed and I'm like, and I, like in my head I think that could be good or bad, right? This could be bad news about something or there could be a crisis somewhere and it's like, but it could be really good. There's this like tension, like I want to know what's going on there. But the reality is, it's, it doesn't help my sleep. Um, and so we now know that in the old, previously we may have been able to, like, with technology, pre-technology, it got dark. Maybe the television was on, whatever. People would read, talk, play a board game, cards, depending on the type of family you grew up in, and then you'd kind of head off to bed. That's disappearing. That was the preparation, the slowdown, the wind down at the end of the day. It's disappearing. Um, and so now we're having to talk about the idea of how do you bring everything down in order to prepare the body for sleep? Because if everything's kind of agitated and you go and put your head on the pillow, your brain just kind of keeps rolling, takes a long time. Um, it's, and it's not just about sleep then, it becomes about mental health because sleep is, sleep is really important. Um, so a digital sunset in your home, right? I like that idea. It's a picture of Narrabeen Lake. How cool is that? Huh? Well, yeah. <laughs> You've got to look up from the screen to see it. Um, intentionally nurturing self-esteem in our children and adolescents, right? If I think there are things that are really important that, are, that we need to be doing to combat some of the concern areas... This is one of them, because a lot of the links relate to decreased self-image, concerns about body image, all this, you know, am I popular, am I okay? And for kids and adolescents, they need to know, yes, you are. In fact, you're awesome. Um, And it doesn't matter how many likes you get. We don't want them addicted to the likes. We don't want them getting that little hit, the little dopamine, you know, Oh, this is good, look at the likes. I don't, we don't want them addicted to that. We want them to know who they are, not rely on this sort of stuff or feel like they've got to put stuff out there in order to get people to go. You're okay. Um, We've got to increase our awareness and sensitivity about around mental health issues. Um, I've got up there mental health first aid training. You know, there's an awesome course out there, mental health first aid training. I'm, I'm, I'm plugging it. I spent ages doing the training. There's lots of people out there who have done it. But just like we do first aid, mental health first aid is now the thing that's being pushed out. The government is pushing this to increase our ability to recognise emerging mental health issues in young people. Yeah, talk to me. I'll run a free course, right? I'll run a free course for you um, to get accredited if you want to do that because it's important. Um, Protect children from risks by setting boundaries and then helping adolescents to understand the risks so that they can be involved in the process. We've been saying this sort of stuff for years, boundaries. Um, and this is the last thing, you know. We've still got to do this. We've got to protect kids and we've got to educate our adolescents and protect them, right? But we've got to know this is not something we bury our heads in the sand. 
over. We've got to be proactive. You don't have to know everything about social media. You don't have to know what the latest thing is. I'm past that now. I can't keep up. Don't try to. But you've just got to know, actually, at the end of the day, someone coming up to a young person and going, you know what, let me tell you what I think is awesome about you is going to do way more for them than a bunch of likes. Um, and so we've got to be that voice out there. 